Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have a discussion about cutting-edge research going on at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend presents topics that include the State Board of Education's consideration of transgender issues, the restraining order that's allowing abortions to resume in Ohio, and a school funding issue to be decided next month in Pickerington. And I'll wrap up the hour with a segment about the growth of telehealth services and how to find out more about it. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Elaine Martis, who is the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. How are you? Doing well, thanks. How are you, Dave? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Institute for Genomic Medicine, or IGM, is. on the part of Nationwide Children's Hospital. We opened this institute in 2016 at the end of that year um, and really with a vision of introducing genomics into the practice of pediatric medicine. So we've been here for a little over six years now and we um, have become in many ways an integral part of medical practice through what we call translational protocols. So translation is a term that's often used um, to indicate movement of central concepts from basic science, which is what most research is focused on, into clinical medicine and really sort of introducing new concepts um, that, you know, may change the face of medical practice. So that's kind of what we're all about in a sort of 50,000 foot view. And I guess it can be centered or uh, targeting a number of diseases and ailments, cancer being one of them, obviously. Yeah, that's correct. And I think really in pediatrics, we have a unique opportunity to apply genomics and genomics technology, as you said, across a wide variety of diseases that are um, that are seen in children in our hospital, which is, of course, um, one of the largest in terms of patient volume in the United States. So just to cite a few examples for people to understand where else we can point our um, genomic medicine tools and technologies um, besides cancer. Um, we also have translational protocols, for example, studying epilepsy and really the underpinnings of changes in DNA that lead to epileptic seizures in children and young adults. Um, we're also very focused um, on a major investment the hospital has made in uh, biobehavioral health, um, that is in particular the genetics around psychiatric disorders such as bipolar, depression leading to suicidality, and autism. Um, all of these are well understood from large-scale discovery projects that have taken place across many institutions in the United States and the world to really understand the genes that are causative or involved in these diseases. And probably one of the most impactful translational protocols we've had to date, besides the cancer protocol, is a very rapid uh, turnaround information about the genomics of children that are in critical care, such as in the neonatal intensive care unit, where often decisions have to be made in a very short time frame, several hours to a few days, um, in terms of these children and what care they should receive. And in many cases, our genomic tools can really provide new insights um, to helping make those decisions for critically ill children. 
just the whole prospect of finding uh, the internal switches that maybe need to be on or off that somebody didn't come with that way and being able to change those switches for a six-year-old, <laughs> that's pretty exciting. Yes, and I think, you know, it's a really great place to point our efforts in, in aggregate just because it can be so transformational for these patients and for their families. You know, we can provide much more accuracy many times in diagnosing these children. In some in some studies, such as the epilepsy study, for example, we can also reassure parents that it isn't something they did or a gene that was inherited from them that led to epilepsy. What we're finding in, in cases where we're studying epileptogenic tissue from brain, the sites in the brain where these seizures emanate from, is that these are often just random mistakes that occur in the course of development. And by removing that tissue, we can not only help that child overcome the seizures in many cases, but we can also in eventually identify new targets for medicines that may be more accurate, more precise, and more um, corrective of epileptic seizures in children moving forward. So we like to think about the program that we have as being informative about that child in the microcosm of their disease and their diagnosis, but we also know that that the patients and families who consent for these studies are helping children in the future as well. And the uh, Institute for Genomic Medicine has just received a, a $10 million, part of a $10 million gift from Nationwide Foundation goes to the center, correct? Yes, that's correct. So Nationwide um, has the, the insurance company, of course, cited here in Columbus, um, has a, a really great program called their Innovation Fund. It's really donations from their employees across the United States that fuel the Innovation Fund. And much of the work that goes on at IGM, you know, the, the 10 or $11 million that we get year on year from this Nationwide Innovation Fund has historically put a lot of fuel in our tanks for pursuing these translational protocols and really changing a pediatric medicine. So it's incredibly gratifying to have that support from the Nationwide Foundation for the work that we do here. And when you mention parents who have their children involved in the in this testing at the center, we're talking about numbers in the thousands now over the last few years, right? Yes, we've through these translational protocols, we've been able to impact um, many children uh, directly, um, as you mentioned. So overall, we have currently open nine different translational protocols. Um, I named a few of them. I won't um, mention the rest of them, but you get the idea. Um, and yes, we are actively enrolling patients and families onto these protocols all the time. The other um, effort that uh, is intended for many of these translational protocols, as I mentioned, though, is that we we have the translational protocols as a means of engaging providers in epilepsy medicine or in biobehavioral health or in um, critical care, as I mentioned. What we ultimately would like to do, though, is offer the testing that we're performing on these children in the translational protocols in the clinical setting so that uh, over time, we transition from a research-based protocol where really it's a multidisciplinary team, so doctors, 
genomicists, bioinformaticians, you name it, all coming together around these specific um, children and their challenges and, and getting to the root of the problem as best we can um, to a mode where as a provider or a you know physician within our health system you can over time begin to have this testing done just with a regular um, order for diagnostic testing so through our clinical laboratory we transition these early protocols into the clinical laboratory as validated clinical tests what that means is that a doctor seeing a new child in their um, clinic can you know, with the experience they've had it as being a part of the translational protocol, basically say, I know what kind of testing this child needs, I can order it directly, and because it's a clinical test, I can now write that information into the child's medical record and use it for decision-making about treatments or uh, other um, approaches to that child's disease. So that's really, in aggregate, the long-term goal of many of these protocols is to familiarize providers with what genomics can do to the point where then they can include it into the diagnostic component of the work that they do every day, um, valuable work that it is with our patient population. Talking with Dr. Elaine Martis, she is the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Where uh, will genomic medicine go? Is it someday going to be, uh, you know, like a silver bullet for a lot of problems that humans deal with? Well, certainly that's the hope, and I think the earlier we can diagnose problems in the lifespan, the better we can um, deal with them, you know, as children phase from hopefully becoming older children to young adults and, and beyond. I think there are sort of two thrusts to this. One is a, a a preventive aspect, if you will, where um, we can, for example, sequence the genome of a newborn. So at the earliest point in life, even if appearing healthy at that point in time, we have a genome sequence on record for that newborn. The genome in general doesn't change over time with a few exceptions, but this could lay a baseline for sort of anticipating what types of diseases, for example, that child growing through the lifespan into adulthood might encounter, might develop, such as um, type 2 diabetes, for example, or um, some of these um, psychiatric illnesses that I mentioned earlier. So that would be through uh, sort of looking in aggregate at the genome, all of the different locations and genes that we now understand and that knowledge is increasing every day. And using that sort of to set the stage for preventive medicine, knowing what types of diseases that individual is likely to develop. Um, that would actually change medicine in aggregate from being what we call, um, you know, sort of responsive, you get a disease diagnosis, you do something about it, to being very proactive, where as you could um, take steps to alleviate or take medications or, or lifestyle changes, et cetera. So, so that's one a way that things, I think, will change over the longer term. 
in the nearer term, um, one example that comes out of our cancer uh, protocol that um, we were talking about earlier is really a me mechanism to actively test children as they're diagnosed with cancer, not just the ones that are fortunate to be treated at Nationwide Children's Hospital, but in aggregate across the United States. And here what we would be doing is looking at the genomics of the tumor compared to normal cells from that um, individual patient. This can provide a wealth of information to the treating uh, physician, the oncologist that's taking care of that patient, and they may be able to take advantage of many of the new medi medications that are um, you know, ever being approved by the FDA for treatment of cancer, um, typically in adults, but also children are starting to benefit more from those types of medications, so-called targeted therapies. So we really see this as a paradigm shift where we move away from the types of therapies used in cancer that are highly damaging and lead to poorer quality of life in kids that are cancer survivors to more efficient medicines that are more targeted, have fewer long-term side effects, and ultimately yield not only more cancer survivors, but also a better quality of life for those children as they grow into adults. The field of genomics and DNA and all that, it's so interesting because there are still pretty frequently you'll see articles from researchers just looking at something relatively simple, at least compared to cancer, for things like obesity and, and finding out, you know, they're learning more and more about what kind of links there could be there and that two people could go through life almost living identically and eating the same way and one might be obese and one might not because of that. Yeah, that's true. Um, we, you know, some of the some of the aspects we're learning about include the microbial inhabitants of the body, maybe the microbiome, maybe that's what you're referring to. And I think this is shedding, you know, new light on aspects of obesity um, and other diseases. It also turns out, not surprisingly, perhaps the microbiome is involved in cancer and response to cancer therapies. So I, I think it, you're right. With genomics, sort of the more the, that we study, the more we learn. And, and it's become, you know, quite interesting to think about how that knowledge can contribute to overall health um, as opposed to sickness. Well, you've been at uh, Nationwide Children's for about six years now. Uh, yes. It, it's still, every time I drive past the place, I still, you know, I still, <laughs> my mind is still stuck back to what it looked like 30 years ago. <laughs> and it's a completely different place. It's really true. Um, we're in an amazing growth. As, um, as you mentioned, um, we are really excited here at IGM because there's a new research building that's um, basically appended onto the one that we're in right now. So RB3 is where we're at now. RB4 is literally right around the corner because it's be being built at a right angle uh, there along Livingston Avenue. And that will open in early May of next year. There we will occupy the entire second floor adjacent to the second floor that we're on in RB3 now, and um, I think it's just, you know, the beginning, uh, as you said, of a multitude of new buildings going up, as well as a new hospital tower to accompany the one that's already there. So, um, you know, we're really poised for growth, and I think it's really been amazing to be a part of that, 
And it's really been amazing to have the support of the Nationwide Innovation Fund as well, because really what we're doing here would not be possible without um, those types of donations, um, uh, as well as from others that donate through the um, Nationwide Foundation itself. It's uh, interesting because when the hospital gets that large, it seems like it provides flexibility as well because, you know, you've got the On Our Sleeves campaign now, which is focusing so much on mental health with kids. Uh, When a pandemic comes along, you know, who knows the next time it comes along, you may need an entire building over there to deal with it in one way or another, research or whatever. Yeah, you know, I think um, we are um, trying to um, really develop out many of those programs and the responsiveness as well. I think the thing that hasn't changed is that this is a very collaborative place, and this has been really the recipe for success for the translational protocols that we've opened because everyone is very keen to work together towards Um, identifying best outcomes for children, and that's really the overarching sort of ethos here as part of our sort of one-team culture um, across the hospital. And, you know, we'll get bigger, but I don't think that that will change. Talking with Dr. Elaine Martis, she's the co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Another hat you wear is professor of pediatrics at Ohio State's College of Medicine. I'm just curious... What is the future of pediatrics in terms of, are you getting adequate numbers of kids coming up who want to be pediatricians? Um, I So I think that is, in fact, a challenge. Um, pediatrics is, you know, uh, struggling a little bit just in terms of the number of MDs that are interested, you know, coming out of medical school, um, moving into pediatrics. I do think that will change as we begin to impact the um capabilities around diagnosis, as I mentioned, using genomics, and we certainly have seen a lot of interest here in terms of our uh, medical trainees in different subspecialties from the hospital really becoming invested and interested in genomics. One of the programs that we're envisioning in the next couple of years is really developing out educational aspects of genomics, and where we plan to begin to open that up is for training fellows. That's the end of your sort of medical training. So there's medical school, internship, residency, and then a fellowship. And what we would like to be offering in the next couple of years is a second year of fellowship. Traditionally, that's a one-year time period where during the second year, select fellows would be a part of the IGM um, work force and would really train in the genomics around the specialty area that they've focused on in their first fellowship. So I think this is, you know, the beginning of really changing the direction of pediatrics towards um, educating those young trainees around the aspects of genomics and how they play a role in diagnosis and treatment across different pediatric specialties. Is that likely to make a new pediatrician's job uh, more challenging? or because there's maybe more user-friendly information that might be available to them than there would have been 30 or 40 years ago, maybe not so much? No, it's a a really good question. Actually, I think, you know, the hope is that it makes the comprehensive understanding of each individual child more complete and 
that by virtue of that, you have an easier path to determining the next steps in their treatment. I do think, however, to your point, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, we were just starting to think about genomes, which are the basic instruction sets that, you know, encode the organism that results and how to use that information in the setting of, you know, genetics and model organisms and ultimately in medicine. And so there has been this sea change over a relatively short time frame with the sequencing of the Human Genome Project that we participated in um, originally and then, you know, moving out to apply that into the medical setting. So I, I think the appreciation for genomics certainly in newer medical trainees is there much more so than it would have been 30 or 40 years ago. So they're almost poised to be, you know, be able to understand and interpret that information right out of the box. And this fellowship that I just mentioned, I think, would double down for those who are really keen to understand the nitty-gritty details about genomics and how it works. That won't be every doctor, but I think, um, you know, moving forward, we will have doctors that really have that area of specialization in genomics and actively utilize it in their day-to-day in treating and diagnosing patients. It's good stuff. You know, when you look back over the decades, one of the biggest success stories, it seems like, with childhood diseases and and how we've dealt with them besides some of the more commonly thought of ones like polio and things like that uh, is leukemia and this just seems like it could be you know even spanning many more ailments uh, something that could be akin to that down the line yeah that's true i mean um it's interesting that leukemia is the most frequently diagnosed type of childhood cancer but actually more children now die from brain cancer than they do from leukemia. So this is, I think, really our next area of focus in that in general, we understand a lot about the genomics of brain cancer, but we don't haven't really necessarily translated that into new medications for children with a with a brain cancer diagnosis. Um, this is the focus in my laboratory in particular, but at IGM we have considerable a strength in what we call neurogenomics. So that spans from cancers to epilepsies. Um, which actually do co-occur. So we do see some children with brain tumors and epileptic seizures, but it also complements um, new expertise that we've brought into Nationwide Children's Hospital. For example, our new division chief for neuro-oncology is Dr. Mariam Fulati, who is you know actively uh, treating patients with brain cancer in clinic, but um, is also a big believer in the power of research. So many of the children that she sees in her clinics are um, essentially participating in our cancer translational protocol for, you know, molecularly characterizing their cancers. And this, again, feeds forward into identifying the best therapy for them. And obviously, we offer a variety of, you know, clinical trials that those children can participate in as well. So I think we're starting now to try and um, take this, you know, considerable momentum that we have along with the various providers like Dr. Filotti and many of her colleagues and really start moving the needle on innovative therapies that are now going to make these brain cancers hopefully respond, um, go away, and not come back. So that's really the long-term vision here around this um, leading cause of pediatric uh, death by cancer. 
That's great. Uh, Dr. Elaine Martis, co-executive director of the Institute for Genomic Medicine at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Anything else you'd like to add? Oh, no. I just um, appreciate, you know, the support that we're getting. Uh, appreciate your interest for sure in these programs and all the great questions that you had for me today. And uh, looking forward to listening to the podcast. Great. Dr. Martis, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. People lined up to speak at the State Board of Education meeting. They all wanted to debate, to weigh in on a new proposal that would go against President Biden's call to have Title IX expanded to protect transgender students from discrimination. This new proposal would require school districts in Ohio to tell parents when their child questions their gender or prefers to be identified by another name or pronoun. It would also ban transgender women from joining women's teams. 10TV's Kevin Landers listened to the hours of public comment on the proposal. Here are some of the big takeaways. If you pass this resolution, children will die. There is fear. A yes vote on this resolution is you telling me that me and my friends should experience more violence on both sides of the Title IX debate. I have observed with 40-plus years of experience that nothing good comes of the presence of mixed genitalia in restrooms or locker rooms. It is sad that anyone has to come here today to oppose this clownish, very hateful, and purposefully pernicious resolution offered by a State Board of Education member who homeschools his own kids. The resolution opposes federal protections for LGBTQ students, specifically those who are transgender. And the community tonight says personal safety is a major concern. As a parent, my greatest fear for my children is the risk of self-harm and suicidal ideation. Supporters of Title IX say by not expanding federal protection for the transgender community will only support bullying. It is nothing more than state-sponsored bullying and abuse because it attempts to erase their existence. However, those against providing federal protection to transgender youth question if they could be sued if they don't comply. Will I be accused of sex-based discrimination if I request that transgender women who are staff not help my daughter with her menstrual cycle at school? There are also questions tonight about whether the resolution is even legal. These regulations are not laws voted on by Congress. These are regulations created by bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. The proposal before the Ohio Board of Education would also require schools to notify parents if a student questions their gender identity or requests alternative names or pronouns. It also asks lawmakers to ban transgender girls from playing on female sports teams. Failing to adhere to Title IX changes could have major repercussions and would allow the federal government to pull funding for school lunch programs. It is unacceptable anywhere in this country that a child going into a school building should go without a meal for any reason. 
That was Kevin Landers reporting. One former state lawmaker pointed to this week's state Board of Education hearings as a reason to run for a board seat. State Senator Teresa Fetter, who represents the Toledo area, says the board needs to collaborate and focus on education policy, not culture wars. The legislator, who was most recently in the race for Ohio's lieutenant governor, told me that she will use her demonstrated ability to reach across the aisle and find common sense solutions. When I get there, I'm going to have to fight for the freedom for children to learn honest history. Well, why is that? You know, that's a culture war. We need to be about teaching our children what's important in our history and who we are and what we want to be in their dreams. I want to fight for the freedom for students to be their authentic selves. Again, not fight a culture war from state board members that are way off base, and the majority of Ohioans do not support. Fetter is a veteran of the U.S. Air Force and Ohio National Guard. She taught 18 years in the classroom at Toledo Public Schools before first pursuing elected office back in 2000. Even if approved, the State Board of Education Title IX resolution can't be enforced until Ohio law is changed. In the meantime, school districts are pushing back, including the largest district in our state, Columbus City Schools. 10TV's Olivia Eugenio talked with the school board president, who called the resolution disgusting. The Columbus City School Board came out from the get-go with a united front that ended in a four-part approach to say they're against this resolution. At Tuesday night's school board meeting, every board member was wearing the same shirt, each one saying safe space. There are people there that love them for who they are. And so we just wanted to demonstrate that um, as a full district uh, tonight by wearing these shirts for our students. The board using several choice words to describe the resolution dealing with Title IX. Well, I thought it was outrageous. Absolutely disgusting. The school board unanimously approving a four-part approach. The first step, a formal letter signed by the entire board. The second, a formal resolution to be signed at the next school board meeting. Third, a testimony from the board that will be read at the state board of education meeting in October. And finally, formally going to the Ohio School Boards Association to make sure resolutions like this can't happen again. That just demonstrates the commitment that this district has to protecting the rights of our children. We are a safe space for our kids, and we want our kids to be able to walk through our buildings and feel supported um, just for who they are. Our thanks to Olivia Eugenio for that report. At the same time that discussion is happening, Ohio Republicans introduced new legislation aimed at giving parents more control in the classroom. The bill would allow parents the right to review, quote, sexually explicit content and the right to demand an alternative. 10TV's Kiana Deiches explains why some say this proposal is concerning. The president of the Ohio Education Association says the biggest concern is that the bill doesn't clarify how they define sexually explicit content or what they're trying to rule out. In a debate over censorship in schools, Republican lawmakers say it's the parents' job to control what their kids are learning. In a statement, State Rep. Sarah Carruthers says many parents across Ohio believe that schools should provide notification and transparency on certain materials prior to instruction. She introduced the Parents' Bill of Rights Act. Meanwhile, some educators say it's bad for students and teachers. It is shameful. It prevents us from uh, giving students uh, the learning opportunities that they need and deserve. 
Uh, and it's also bad for educators because uh, it is not honoring the professionalism uh, of the education profession. Scott DeMarl is president of the Ohio Education Association. He says he's not sure how this bill would change things if it passes, adding that there are already processes at local school districts for parents to access and review curriculum and request accommodations for their children. That has nothing to do with the well-being of students. Uh, it has nothing to do with the realities of our schools. It's all about politicizing what happens in education. He says he's worried that it may change how students learn about science. There's no exception uh, that's created for teaching of science, teaching anatomy, teaching about health. Um, you know, those are subject areas where sometimes you're going you're, you're gonna to talk about, for example, uh, the reproductive system. I mean, that's just that's just the nature of, you know, that content. The bill awaits further action. The General Assembly is set to return after November elections. In Columbus, Kiana Deitches, 10 TV News. And we want to point out that Kiana did reach out to both lawmakers who introduced those pieces of legislation but did not hear back. Right now, abortions in Ohio are available for people seeking them for a few more weeks. A judge ruled to extend the temporary hold on the state's six-week abortion ban. 10TV's Ashley Bornanson looks at what happens next. The little ones that are really exciting, um, to me at least. I had a few friends actually, you know, text me about it, and I sent it to my mom, and I called her probably with a tear in my eye. I mean, Summer McLean has been fighting for what she says are women's health care rights since the overturn of Roe v. Wade. These are actually some of the protest signs that my mom and I and, and a couple of my friends used on 4th of July. McLean says the temporary ban gives her hope, but she continues to fight on. I've got these little stickers that I distribute around town for the Plan C pills and just being able to share posts and information on social media. Lauren Blovelt Copeland from Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio says clinics in major cities from Columbus and Cleveland to Dayton and Cincinnati are slammed. It's a huge difference for our patients. It's life-changing for the folks that are able to be seen within the 14 days of the TRO. Blovelt Copeland says patients are coming from all over Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, Indiana, and even as far as Texas to schedule here in Ohio during this limited time. Amy Maple from Preterm, an abortion clinic in Cleveland, says their appointments have already nearly doubled since the temporary ban. We're ready to hit the ground running and take care of as many pregnant people who need abortions as possible. But for anti-abortion groups... It's truly devastating um, from our you know, side of, of the aisle because when you, um, you know, break down what abortion really is, it's the purposeful ending of an innocent human life in the womb. Lizzie Whitmarsh from Ohio Right to Life says her organization is working on educating women through pro-life resources like pregnancy centers. Now both sides gearing up for November, taking their fight to the polls. We are absolutely invested in the 2022 election and it's incredibly important that we turn out the vote and that we flip the Ohio Supreme Court. I definitely don't think that it's just pro-choice women that are registering. I think that pro-life women are very motivated. Ashley Bornanson reporting for us. Groups from both sides of that issue told her that they're planning protests in October to draw more attention 
as we head into the November election season. Planned Parenthood is specifically looking at that state Supreme Court. Here's a look at who's running. Current Justices Sharon Kennedy and Jennifer Brunner are running for the open chief justice seat. Two sitting justices are up for re-election. Justice Pat Fisher is running against Terry Jamison, and Marilyn Zayas is challenging Justice Pat DeWine for his seat. Also on the ballot, a levy for the Pickerington Local School District. They're hoping that this will work out for them by posting videos on social media of crowded hallways. That's what you see here, saying this is why the levy needs to be passed. 10TV's Brian Somerville explains how much money they are asking for and how it would be spent. The committee that is trying to push this levy through come November says growth is inevitable. The families are coming, the students are coming, and it's up to us to be ready. The Pickerington Local School District says now is the time. Honestly, we're, we're at a place now where we just can't wait any longer. Tom Danes is the chair for Vote for Pick Kids, an organization that supports a newly proposed $89 million bond that, if passed, would drastically help a district that continues to grow in population and is already stretched thin. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't go down to the local uh, event hall and exceed capacity there, it'll be shut down by the fire marshal. Why should we expect our schools to be any different? Our kids deserve better. According to the district, two schools, Tollgate Elementary and Central High School, are exceeding capacity, and five have capacity of more than 90%. It also estimates in five years' time, an additional 1,000 students will be enrolled. Now, you're probably wondering right now, what is this going to cost me? And the answer just might be nothing. So based on what we're seeing, we're not going to see a tax increase for the majority of people in Pickerington. And that's a great thing. We love that this is a, a place that you can live where taxes are low and we want to keep it that way. The reason that is, is twofold. First, Dane says the district has been good stewards with its money and paying off debt. The second, an increase in local property value. What's also interesting, this bond is about $5 million lower than similar ballot issues that were turned down in November of 2020 and May of last year. But Danes right. hopes the third time's the charm. Absolutely, I think this is the time. If voters pass it, it would build a new junior high school, renovate Ridgeview Junior High School, add 24 classrooms at Central High School and 18 classrooms at North High School. If it doesn't pass, the district says it could have to redraw district lines as well as switch to hybrid learning. We're going to be looking at some very tough choices in the future, and whether that's hybrid learning or modulars out in parking lots or renting space in an abandoned retail spot. Um, none of those are great options. In Pickerington, Bryant Somerville, 10 TV News. The district says if the bond passes, it would qualify the district for $75 million in future funding from the Ohio Facilities Construction Commission. That would mean even more renovations for a half dozen schools within the district. Voters must be registered by October 11th, the day before absentee and early in-person voting begins. Intel vowed to focus on Ohio and minority businesses. Up next, one lawmaker says he's making sure that promise is kept.
Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Chances are your workplace includes several different generations, baby boomers and Gen X, millennials and Generation Z. Whether it's generational, gender or race and ethnicity, the job of melding different viewpoints is critical to a company's success or failure. Business leaders are learning the importance of creating or elevating their messages on the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies. Eric Kearney, who's the Ohio Chamber of Commerce's diversity and inclusion director, told me that the agency pulled together its first ever summit to meet the growing need with practical advice for business leaders. We have a lot of people um, in Ohio who maybe are not experiencing their full potential, maybe have not been given an opportunity to um, show their talent at certain jobs or have the opportunity to perform certain tasks. And so really the approach of DEI from this organization's uh, standpoint is to make sure that people in Ohio, business people in Ohio realize we've got a pool of talented individuals who can help make companies more profitable. And you may remember Eric Kearney. He served as state senator for Ohio's 9th District from 2005 to 2014. Intel is one company that's moving into our state and making a promise to support minority business owners. Next month, Intel will meet with multiple Ohio suppliers. Those companies will pitch products and services. Intel has promised to prioritize Ohio businesses. Representative Thomas West of Stark County says he's committed to holding Intel accountable to keep that promise. We had a a, a robust conversation around uh, diversity and inclusion and the supply chain responsibilities uh, that Intel has brought forward. And I I have to tell you, I was really impressed with what I heard uh, from not just what they're looking to do, but what they have done. Intel has invested $20 billion into Ohio and promises to bring thousands of jobs. As the city of Columbus grows, so does the price of living, which is why city leaders say they're working on a plan. And that plan involves a $200 million affordable housing bond, money that Mayor Andrew Ginther says is important to the community. Think about it. From 2009 to 2019, our region added more than 140,000 new jobs and nearly 300,000 residents. But we built only a little over 50,000 new building units, new housing units. That's just not sustainable. The bond issue will be on the ballot in November. If Columbus votes yes, over $1.5 billion will be dedicated to affordable rental units and subsidies for more affordable home ownership. Now, an update to a 10 Investigates report involving Cedar Point and allegations of sexual assault. Emails uncovered by our team show Cedar Point has been reluctant to publicly discuss the issue. This summer, we've learned of two more sexual assaults, bringing the total to 29 in the past five years. Here's Chief Investigative Reporter Bennett Haverly with the lasting impact the incidents have had on employees.
when I stepped up and when I spoke out about it, I expected something to be done. Erin McKay is still haunted by what she says happened to her at Cedar Point. In three separate incidents, Erin told me she was twice groped and once raped by coworkers. I physically resisted and it wasn't until I started crying where he realized that he had messed up. As an underage employee in 2017, Erin says she wasn't allowed to live in the dorms and was only visiting friends when she was assaulted by a colleague. We had all gotten separated, so it was just me and the guy, and then he had his way with me. She did not report the rape to Cedar Point Police because she says she feared it would end her early career at a place she dreamed of working. But Erin says she did report the two other incidents of being groped while on the job, but that a manager discouraged her from going to police. And I was like, so is this something, because I was 16 or 17, I was like, is this something that I should do? Because this man is like 35 groping me in the closet. And then he said, well, do you really think your parents would let you work here? Because he knew I was just in love with the job. And he used the... You shouldn't do this because then you won't be able to work here anymore. Cedar Point has denied that it discouraged its employees from coming forward and offers services to all of them. Now 21, Erin takes medication and says she still suffers from PTSD and has trouble starting conversations or even being around men. I thought it was finally free when I was done and I had moved out of state, but it all just... These, these waves just come in periodically of just more trauma and my eyes opening up to what really happened and how it's still affecting me. Since our reporting began, we've talked to more than a half dozen women whose stories date back to 1994, all of whom said they endured sexual assault or harassment while working at the Thrill Park. They were grabbing on me and I said no. Then... Um, we had went went home from the bar, and that's where that's where one of one of them I had sex with. And you said no, and they continued. They continue, yes. Demi Arm says she worked there in 2007. A party-like atmosphere, she says, led to encounters where she wasn't capable of consent. She told me she lost her job at Cedar Point after getting into a fight with a roommate who she alleges took nude cell phone pictures of her while she was asleep. I reported it to Cedar Point Police because I got called in over breaking that phone. And Cedar Point Police did nothing. So I felt like I had no voice. Like I feel like today, like still I have no voice. Cedar Point is in the process of dissolving its police department, handing over power to Sandusky Police, which will provide a police presence in and around the park. Back in June, 10 investigates asked Cedar Point Police for its records about the incidents it investigated. They have not replied. Of the 29 sexual assault reports made to Sandusky Police, only three have led to criminal charges. That's too many. You know, it is. It's too many. Erie County Prosecutor Kevin Baxter says the cases can often be difficult to prosecute with no witnesses and he said, she said scenarios. But Baxter acknowledges the history of sexual assault reports at Cedar Point is part of the reason why in 2019 his office reached out, offering educational services to Cedar Point employees on sexual assault awareness and training. His coordinator wrote, quote, 
Through providing this information, we can hopefully prevent some assaults. They, they never took us up on it. Internal emails show Cedar Point has been reluctant to talk about the sexual assaults publicly. Take a look at this email from earlier this year, when Sandusky's police chief told the Cedar Point chief he was planning to do an interview with our sister station WTOL. Cedar Point chief Ron Gilson wrote, quote, that he was not permitted to speak on any topics unless instructed, adding that he wanted Sandusky's police chief to keep him posted on how it goes. Sorry you have to be in the middle of this. They're just trying to cover themselves. They're try- they don't want the public to know anything about what really happens at the park. Bennett Haverly reporting there. Cedar Point has not responded to follow-up questions sent, asking why they're reluctant to talk about the sexual assaults and what prompted the decision to dissolve its police department. Remember, if you have something you want our team to look into, email us at 10investigates at 10tv.com. We certainly thank you for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Have a great week. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. Here's Tracy with more information about what you can see this morning on 10 TV. Coming up on Face the State, lawmakers are talking strategy and tougher penalties to push back against the escalating problem of swatting schools. We'll have more on that. Plus, just in time for the midterm election, lower gas prices. Is that coincidence? Our Verify team takes a look. And federal findings reveal the pandemic put our kids behind in reading. I'm talking with the head of a local foundation using college student athletes to win big with books. We'll see you at 1130. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. We put our lives on the line for our country. We braved the unknown. We did what we were told. And we lit up. Our cigarette packs were as valuable as the packs on our back. Maybe more. At one point, cigarettes were part of our daily ration. Smoke them if you got them. And boy, we were smoking them. Bumming a smoke was the norm. It was an escape from the reality of dirt, sweat, and forgetting how many days you were so far from home. Never had to worry so long as you had a light and the smoking lamp was lit. If that was you then, get your lungs screened now. Surviving lung cancer starts with a scan. Learn more at ScreenYourLungs.org. And thank you for your service. This PSA was made possible by industry funding and guidance from lung cancer patient groups. My muscles ached. I was tired all the time. My son had a full-blown asthma attack. It came out of nowhere. The unsettling thing about some symptoms is... I had a fever and these terrible headaches. You don't always know what's causing them. It was Lyme disease from a tick bite. I had Zika virus from a mosquito. He had a reaction to cockroach allergens. Threats to your health can come from unexpected places. Get the facts. Visit pestworld.org. A public service message from the National Pest Management Association. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Heather Demaris. She is the director of the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. How are you? I'm doing great. 
Steve. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for talking to us. You're uh, with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, correct? That's correct. Um, I am the director for the Office for Advancement of Telehealth. That's um, an uh, organization called the Health Resources and Services Administration that sits within HHS. Um, And I'm excited to talk about how telehealth has really expanded and given people access to telehealth services and, more importantly, um, behavioral health care, including mental and substance use services, especially with the mental health crisis across the country. And I know that you're especially reaching out to those uh, who are perhaps struggling, having difficulties, or maybe in rural areas, people that have difficulty obtaining health care. That's right. Telehealth can improve health equity um, by increasing access to healthcare services um, for those who don't have transportation or for those who need to have access to care in that um, integrated in-person and telehealth um, uh, uh, care model can work for the services that they need. And that really is true for telebehavioral health services. We've seen a lot of success and a lot of utilization for telebehavioral health services over the pandemic. And it seems like this is an industry that kind of grew up during the pandemic. Telehealth has been around for decades, but you're right. The pandemic really has catapulted um, the use of telehealth in a way no one would have imagined. Um, We were able in the early stages of the pandemic to set up a new site, telehealth.hhs.gov. That is a place that patients or providers can go to get the latest information and tools about telehealth. And it really has a lot of information for patients who are new to telehealth or who want to try telehealth for different services they might not have done before. And I think we're seeing that providers and patients alike have really enjoy this. We um, continue to build out telehealth.hhs.gov so that there's more information about how telehealth can be used in order to improve access to healthcare for patients. And that is a good site. When you go to it, it really uh, steps it out. Uh, it's it's uh, really set up right off the front page for people who have no idea what to expect or how it works. And it, it goes through it in a very step-by-step process. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. We do a lot to try to make it accessible. One thing that we have included is Spanish translation across the website for any Spanish-speaking listeners. They can um, view it both in Spanish and in English. And one thing that I want to point to as well, for listeners who may not have um, enough money to pay for access to broadband services or high-speed internet, there is a link on the site um, for the Affordable Connectivity Program to help people access high-speed internet when they can't afford it. So if you have access in your area and you just can't pay for it, um, if you click on telehealth.hhs.gov, you can uh, go ahead and click through the link and apply for this benefit. It's a federal benefit. If you already receive a federal benefit, such as a WIC program, the SNAP program, or a Pell Grant. There's a whole bunch of different eligibility criteria. But if you already see the federal benefit, you can um, uh, receive eligibility for the Affordable Connectivity Program and get access to broadband services for free. Talking with Heather Damaris, she is the director of the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. What is this doing to the medical industry? I mean, you know, if you talk to a doctor or a healthcare provider online, That's somebody who maybe used to be in an office talking to somebody in person who now isn't in the office talking to somebody in person. So how is that being distributed so that everybody's being cared for in all directions? You know, it is 
quite interesting how the culture is shifting. I think we're seeing a lot of providers see the benefit of integrating telehealth into their standard of care. So where they have patients uh, that used to come in person all the time to get services, now they're seeing the benefit of possibly seeing them in person and then following up virtually, um, again, through telebehavioral health. Um, and, and information is also on telehealth.hhs.gov for providers. There are reimbursement changes for those providers so that they can get paid for virtual care. Um, and some of those are temporary uh, during the pandemic, but others, uh, the government through the Medicare program has made permanent for telebehavioral health services. So if a patient um, wants to receive telebehavioral health services and it's the right fit for them, the provider can get paid to provide those services via telehealth rather than in person. And, and the good news too, like I mentioned, access to broadband is really the foundation for telehealth. Um, however, with telebehavioral health, if a patient doesn't have high-speed internet, it's okay. The provider can still get reimbursed and still provide the services through telephone. So you can do an audio-only call with your patient and still get paid. And all of that reimbursement information, like I said, is on telehealth.hhs.gov on the provider side of the website. And um, I think anyone in, in your listener audience um, who is a provider could look on there for more information about reimbursement for virtual services. If somebody is uh, the type who just simply does not go to the doctor and, and maybe hasn't had a checkup or you know any kind of a medical record for perhaps decades, can they get their foot in the door through telehealth? You know, there are different ways that people can connect to a provider. If they don't have a primary care provider already, they can go to telehealth.hhs.gov. There's a link where if you're insured or uninsured, um, uh, there's a link for uh, Find a Health Center program, and health centers are located across the country, and they um, provide telehealth services. Um, they take patients who are insured, um, but they also take patients who are uninsured, and they do that um, with a sliding scale fee. Um, however, there's also information on telehealth.hhs. I'm sorry, and telehealth.hhs.gov about the marketplace where people can enroll for insurance through healthcare.gov. Talking with Heather Damaris, she's the director of the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. What are the most common types of medical uh, situations that people are using telehealth for? Uh, you know, we see a ton of services um, uh, being utilized through telehealth. The top one uh, certainly is telebehavioral health services. People have really uh, taken to that both on the provider side and the patient side. We also see um, chronic disease management and follow-up care, um, as well as um, uh, just general uh, urgent care options. Uh, it's really great when you can do a video chat and and kind of do a quick assessment with your provider uh, if you can't make it into the office. And for rural communities, and I know in Ohio there are a lot of rural communities, um, it's really nice to have that option um, when you would otherwise need to drive quite a distance. So in some ways, it can help improve access and health equity uh, because you're able to uh, get to an appointment without driving such a long distance. And then I wanted to ask you real quick, and, and maybe this isn't quite related to it, but I'm just curious, Medicare uh, enrollment and re, you know re-enrollment from year to year has become very, very complicated, it seems like, with all the different types that are available these days. Can folks uh, get information through telehealth that way? So there is 
is a lot of information on telehealth.hhs.gov about both Medicare and Medicaid. Um, and patients um, or your listeners can go to the website, and it does link to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So they can learn even more about the benefits that they can receive. There are application processes um, with um, all federal benefits, and so there would be a process in order to do that. But as it changes, uh, telehealth.hhs.gov does update that information on our website so they can get the latest information on those benefits or the marketplace through telehealth.hhs.gov. Excellent. Heather Damaris, Director of the Office for the Advancement of Telehealth. Anything else you'd like to add? I just want to thank you for the time today, Dave. I really hope uh, the listeners in Ohio find some benefits to this and they they go to telehealth.hhs.gov to learn about different ways they can access care a little bit easier through telehealth. Uh, And I hope it it really um, does help because it's just a great way to get this information out, especially around the behavioral health care piece that's so important to our country right now. Great. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.